welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Babylon 5! Wait, is that the voice I'm supposed to use? Maybe I should do another voice. <clears throat> Hang on, let me... Let me try it again. Give me a second, guys. <clears throat> now, now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational Babylon 5. No? Okay, whatever. So, I don't have a lot to say about this episode, but we do have another of the controversial Deutsch boxes to talk about. I'm going to save that for the end, as I usually do. No spoilers today. Uh, I could talk about B4, but there's nothing really to talk about B4. So, I don't like Jinx's actor. I, I hate to start with that, but I don't. He's got this kind of odd smile on his face, even when he shouldn't. Like, he's just barely remembering how to keep himself presented and how to remember his lines. And he doesn't really act so much as he does fling his lines out. You know, it's just, it, it kind of bothered me. And it was probably especially apparent since he was acting alongside David freaking Warner. For those of you who don't know, I am a huge fan of David Warner. And this episode is a great example of why. So, <clears throat> if I was to tell you that there's a character who has, has spent most of his life in search of the Holy Grail in a science fiction show, legitimately, you know, it's not like he, uh, he's like, oh, it's, it's metaphoric or whatever. He is searching for the Holy freaking Grail. And you would probably think, oh, that's got to be a ridiculous, stupid character that's there for comic relief. No, Londo is the, and Veer are the comic reliefs of this episode. Um, David Warner's character, whose name I can't remember for the life of me because I'm terrible, I just kept thinking of him as David Warner. He's the character with the serious plot line, and he has a tremendous, he adds so much weight and gravity to his role that you can believe that he's, 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 he means what he says. He knows what he's doing. He's pushing forward. It, it, it adds weight. It's something I've talked about many, many times. Context uh, helps, and presentation helps. Uh, for those of you who weren't present, I did a stream a long time ago. Uh, I guess about a year and a half ago now. Uh, two Halloweens ago. And I was talking about how, in the right circumstances, something totally ordinary and normal could be horrifying. And we were actually quoting the then-recent Age of Ultron trailer, which had come out, where he said, there are no strings on me, in an absolutely chilling way. That's the power of context and presentation. But it works the other way as well. I talked about this during the Kingdom Hearts lore run as well. You take a master like Christopher Lee and put him behind a voice who is talking about the nature of heart and life and failure and opening his heart about his deep personal shame, and he's talking to Mickey Mouse. And yet that scene had incredible gravity and weight behind it because of the context and the presentation. It's the same thing here. This is an old man talking to a, a new apprentice about finding the holy frickin' grail, and yet because of David Warner's performance, I'm with him. And you feel like this is actually something real, something serious, something of relevance. For God's sakes, there's a scene in this episode where David Warner, I, I, again, I don't remember the character's name, David Warner talks down the feeder. Flat out. The feeder comes to him and he says, nope. <laughs> Just completely talks him down and out of the suit even. That says volumes about the kind of weight that character should have. And Warner pulls it off. So we've got the, 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 the notes on the page and the performance to help sell it. Love that. Sorry for gushing, but I mean, really, there's a reason I am such a huge, huge fan of David Warner. He's been great in everything, like, I've ever seen him in. He was great in Star Trek VI, he was great in Baldur's Gate Two. he was great in uh, 
chain of command, you know. I could name other examples, but you get the point. He's no, uh, he's, he's not exactly new to science fiction either, as I just kind of indicated. But moving on, moving on. Um, I also want to give some props to William Sanderson. He actually played uh, Deuce, the extorter. Now, the funny thing is, I find this interesting because the way it's presented in this episode, he is uh, effectively an organized criminal kingpin kind of a guy. And it's it's implied that he has been around for a bit, that he actually is pretty pretty powerful, relatively speaking. The reason I find that interesting is we've already seen a few organized crime people before this, and we will actually see him again, uh, well, sort of, in the future. But the interesting part about this to me is he's actually small time, but I like that. He is, in many ways, like the Raiders are. Ultimately, they are certainly a threat, and they are an issue, and a difficulty that needs to be dealt with and settled, but compared to other things, the Raiders are not that big of a conflict, that big of an issue, right? Same thing with Deuce. And I like that presentation. I also like the fact that there is organized crime on Babylon 5. I know that sounds weird, but it, not, number one, it makes perfect sense. It would be ridiculous to actually try and maintain a organized crime-free situation on a station of this many cultures and this many people. That's, that's just infeasible unless you go to ridiculous extremes. Um... The other thing I like about it, though, is uh, the organized part. We've seen criminals, petty criminals and whatnot throughout the station. We've seen them many, many, many times. Seeing someone who actually has henchmen and someone who actually has organization and is actually working with other people towards some kind of a long-term goal and is actually running a racket rather than just going off and doing petty thievery, that's nice. That's a nice touch. That helps flesh out the undercurrent, uh, undercurrent economy that we see going on throughout this episode, that we see going on throughout the show in general. Um, and again, that'll be touched on in the future. It's actually a nice note because Ungroth is actually uh, considered to be the actual criminal in, uh, kingpin of the thing. For those of you who don't know who I'm talking about, that's actually the insect-like guy we've seen several episodes before now. Um, I already gushed up. <laughs> I actually have a note here on my notes that literally just says, David Warner! And it's like it, four exclamation points and underlined and because it's David Warner. Um, let's talk about the uh, the thing at the beginning. So this episode was trying to play with people's expectations and make them think that this actually was Kosh. I actually asked a couple of other people who watched Babylon 5 when it came out, including Lurker, hi Lurker, uh, on the stream while I was going through this episode, and a couple other people I know personally who aren't, who aren't viewers, and none of us ever believed it was Kosh at all. None of us bought into that. I find that funny because, A, they do go out of their way to try and make it seem like it could be Kosh based on the construction of it, and yet at the same time, it's completely unbelievable. I also find it funny because all of us felt it wasn't Kosh for different reasons. For me, the idea that this relatively, uh, you know, this brand new criminal in, under, you know, Kingpin, who we've never seen before, uh, who is, who is as I've mentioned, actually kind of a low-rate criminal, uh, organized criminal kingpin guy, like a, a made man, basically. Um, the idea that he was someone who could command or work with Kosh is ridiculous. I remind you that in a previous episode, all of the leaders of every present race, including all the major races and all the non-aligned worlds, all got together and were in a huge tough about the Deathwalker. You remember that episode? And on the one hand, there were people saying she absolutely must be protected. On the other hand, it was people saying she absolutely must be destroyed. And they were doing this back and forth and huge political kerfuffle about that. Remember we talked about that? 
Kosh moved in and destroyed her and then left. That's Kosh. He doesn't give a damn about the, the little people or the little things. He doesn't do things in a small way. He walked in and, and told all of the leaders of every known race that had political affluence throughout the galaxy, no, no, bad, and then walked away. And they didn't even raise up a voice against him. That's Kosh. By contrast, the idea of him being used as a... Uh, uh, even working with which is what was actually my first impression, working with uh, Deuce, is ridiculous to me. Some other people pointed out that we've actually seen uh, what he looks like back in the pilot episode, sort of. We didn't really. We saw the hand reaching out uh, from his robes, so that's, that's a thing we saw. And the idea that he suddenly has tentacle feeler things that, that eat people uh, was not something that was considered possible or true or viable or whatever uh and and there were a couple other excuses i don't want to go over all of them but the point is everyone agreed that it wasn't kosh i just find that funny um i like the two insights we get into the minbari culture in this episode first of all that they revere a true seeker someone who has truly utterly devoted themselves to the cause the ideal of trining and finding and actually committing i think is the word i want to use you could use the word obsession you could use the word fixation but those uh not only have negative connotations but i really feel don't actually get across the flavor of this this is about commitment this is about continuing to go forward even in the absence of evidence and the near certainty of, vic of failure knowing that you are probably never going to accomplish it, but being so committed to fully put yourself into it. Not ha no half measures. Hence, true seeker. Someone who is not just going through the motions, but someone who is actively seeking regardless of the knowledge and reality of their situation. He himself admits, David Warner, great guy, uh, admits, you know, I've never seen it. The odds of me finding it are low. The, the odds of it being on Earth are non-existent since we've never found it, you know, blah, 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 blah. And yet he is still seeking it. And I like the fact that Minbari culture would venerate that kind of person, because that makes perfect sense. It is very logical for the Minbari culture to look at someone that devoted to something and honor that even knowing even acknowledging that it might be delusional or foolishly idealistic or simply wrong they still venerate the discipline and the mindset necessary to be that devoted and commitment that the commitment and devo devotion itself is what is valuable to them that is a very Minbari concept, which brings me to my next point. This is actually the very first time, believe it or not, that Minbari casts are brought up. Now, this is kind of a spoiler, but not in any real sense, so I'm just going to talk about this. The episode mentions two casts. There are actually three Minbari casts. Um, but, and then they mention how, basically, the idea and implication is that everything we've encountered about the Minbari thus far, a.k.a. not the war, has been the religious caste, and based on what we know in the future, that's pretty true. But then they mention the warrior caste, and how they really don't want another war to happen, and how that could be bad, and there's some implications there that while the castes are, you know, on the same side, they're not really what you'd call fully in coordination with each other, which makes sense, especially given the severe segregation that a caste system implies. The third caste, for anyone curious, is the worker caste. The mere fact that the Mimari have a, a caste system at all is, again, indicative of their, their culture, but not in any new way. It's just an added layer to it. The fact that, you know, you, you're, you are now a member of this caste, that's your life. Go, you know. Um, 
words. The so one of the things I like about this is when they find Londo. Londo is kind of the the joke plot of this episode, which eh, whatever. I like Veer, but I'll get to that in a moment. Um, the joke moments didn't really go with me in the same way that like old Trek joke moments didn't really go with me. Maybe I'm just weird and old and cynical and bitter, but the humor didn't quite hit me. What I found interesting, though, was Londo was in the casino in a great mood. What's the previous episode to this one? Oh, yeah, TKO. Okay, so this is the next episode that we've seen that Londo's been in since Sign and Portents. An episode at which, at the end, he was going to be leaving because his career was over, except, of course, he got the eye. In other words, my point is, the next time we see Londo, after that, he is celebrating and in a great mood in the casino, offering drinks and just generally being jovial. I mention this because I don't think that was accidental. We've seen how he acts in the casinos before. We've seen him in the casino several times. He's not just, yes, yeah, it's great. It's been more of a, a desperate, oh, yes, gamble, go, get the gambling. Oh, I fell. There's that tint of darkness to every performance he's given in the casinos. In this one, it's just pure jubilation. I don't think that was in, unintentional. I think that was deliberate. You, you and your career... You know, I can just picture the director saying, okay, your career has just been saved. Act like it. And that's all you'd have to say, really. It's not important. It's not a big deal, but it's a nice little touch. And Babylon 5 is really good at little touches. This is not exactly the first or last time that will have happened. So, um, Veer. <laughs> I love it that, that Londa's like, well, for if you're willing to pay, we can go through the long process, you know. And then Veer's like, no, I've already taken care of it. I've already looked down, I've narrowed it down a bit. And then Londo starts yelling at him right in front of them, too. But I love it because the implication there is that efficiency is the enemy of the Centauri Empire. After all, efficiency leads to, you know, a lack of red tape, which leads to a lack of politics, which leads to a lack of money and power and corruption, which, as we've already established, are basically the basis of Centauri society. Uh, in the sense of the whole, you know, backstabbing figuratively rather than literally thing that I've talked about before about them. Veer, therefore, and this is the second time I'm pointing this out, is pretty non-standard Centauri. Just keep that in the back of your minds. So, I agree with David Warner's comment about Jinxo's character. You notice I haven't talked about Jinxo like at all. I don't really have much to say about him. I will say this. The fact that he was this much in debt staying here means he's really been having a hard time making it work here. And yet he's staying here regardless. And then he is threatened by the gentleman and he's staying here regardless. And he has offered leniency to leave and he is staying here regardless. Once again, there's a degree of commitment to that, but more importantly, I agree with David Warner's comments that he is a good man as a result of that. Even at severe loss and penalty and punishment to himself, up to and including the possibility of his own death, he is willing to stay here because he truly believes that if he leaves, these people are doomed, and he doesn't want that to happen. Now, you might say, well, that's normal. You know, any person should have that kind of commitment. To which I say, no, it's not. <laughs> Cynicism. Seriously, though. It doesn't, it, whether it's normal or not, I'm not even going to argue the point. Um, I still think it speaks to his character. I still think it makes him a good man for being willing to go through that. Um, I have another note here. It says, and then David Warner talks down a feeder. He's so awesome. Um... 
Only a few more things to mention. So uh, the structure of the ending of this episode is weird. You get the very strong impression they were running short on time, so they just kind of tacked on a scene. And then they were short on time, and so they tacked on a scene. And they were short on time, so they tacked on a scene. Please no Return of the King jokes. I'm I, I just saying that the end of this episode, it's structured weirdly because each f- there's a scene that's clearly the end, and then it keeps going, but not in a way that flows. It just kind of jumps from scene to scene, and then scene to scene, and then, okay, now we're at the end. Boom, as Ivanova says. I do like the fact that both Sinclair and Garibaldi, despite their affirmations that they don't believe in the curse, breathe a sigh of relief when he leaves and, and the station is still there. Especially noteworthy. I mean, I, I know this that this would never happen in television back in the day, but it's especially noteworthy since they just had a vision about Babylon 5 being destroyed two episodes ago. So that was probably in someone's mind. Another point before I get to the controversial Deutsch box. Kosh has a line, and that line is the word good. Sinclair, uh, paraphrasing, says that the fact that he was using Kosh is, was trying to spread fear and mistrust and hatred and whatnot of the Vorlons, and, and the response of a real Vorlon to that was good. This entire episode doesn't really have much in the way of arc significance. There's a little bit of foreshadowing, and then there's this line, and that's really it. But this one line says so much. I've already explained my thoughts on the Vorlons, the idea that they want to... They want people to think they are higher than they are. They want to be the aristocracy. You know, I've already talked about that mindset. This line just cements that. The little people are afraid of us. Good. So let's hit the controversial box. Uh, maybe I'll remember to do, do a graphic this time. I don't know. I haven't really settled on one yet. So the down below. This epi- issue is brought up by Sinclair and Garibaldi both. Garibaldi says, let me go clean up the down below, the criminal underbelly under of Babylon 5. Sinclair says, no. If you go down there, you're, 90% of those people are just people who came here looking for a new life and had nowhere else to go. They are victims and they are innocent. And of course, even the people who aren't innocent are still victims. This is a problem that exists in real life too. This is why I call this the controversial box. It's hard to label this one. I guess the closest label we could come up with is is the word unemployment or homeless. But both of these things, concepts still apply. The idea here is a lot of the times when when people get into crime, you know, your petty theft or, or laundering or, or smuggling or whatever, in, in real life, but as also in P five, they don't. It's not like they set out. Oh, I want to be a career criminal. That's not really what they were doing. You know, they were setting out to get a job or to get a new life or get a place for themselves or whatever, and they failed. And once they failed, their options were death or crime. And believe it or not, most people will pick crime in those circumstances. And that's understandable. It does not make them any less guilty, but it is also the reason why this is a controversial topic is because what do you do about that? Is it society's fault? Well, see, the problem is that's a vague statement that means nothing. There is no such thing as society. It's a vague word. It doesn't actually mean anything. So, okay, let's narrow it down a bit more. Is it a particular civilization's fault? In other words, the aggregate consensus of the people? Possible. Is it the government's fault? Possible. Is it the fault of the individuals who are running the economy? Possible. 
I think the real question here, though, is why does fault even need to be established in this situation? See, that's I, I bring this up as well, because anytime I hear this uh, exact topic debated in real life, it's always about who is to blame. Well, I don't give a damn who's to blame. I give a damn about what you're doing to fix it, what you're doing to actually resolve this situation. Now, the problem is, and DS9 touched on this episode, uh, too. Uh, I forget the name of the episode. It's one where they go into the past. Uh, it's a two-parter, actually. Some of you might know. It's, I'm sure I'll get like 50 comments with people telling me the name of the episode. I can't think of it right now. But it touched on the same episode because there is no easy answer to that. There's no just jobs, you know. You can't just make jobs happen. That doesn't function that way. You don't just create work, you know. It has to come from somewhere. It has to work in some way. It is also worth noting that a decent amount of people who are in this kind of a circumstance aren't interested in getting a handout. They want to go work. They want to go live. They don't want to sit... Now, okay, okay, I'm speaking of the aggregate. There are certainly some people who just want to sit on their ass and collect their paycheck. That's the, that's the exaggerative. That's the extreme. That's the outlier. The other people want to go work. They want a job. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, what about the dock workers thing? They just got a ton of money for that. Yes, and I imagine a lot of those people could do that work if they knew how to, or they could get in on the contract. Remember that one of the big problems there is that they were all under a government contract and, is never stated but outright implied, they're in a union. Trying to get a union job when you don't have the skills to do a union job, well, let's just say that that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. And that, of course, leads to the other side of the problem, which is education. Because, see, there's such a thing as too much and too little education. You can see why this topic drifts so easily into the controversial box here, don't you? Because there's no way to talk about this without discussing unemployment, government subsidiaries, homelessness in general, unemployment in general, education both too much and too little at all ends of the spectrum. And all of this comes from a simple idea that people who have nothing and are victimized by the fact that they have nothing can be utilized by the people who have something. Sometimes those people are utilized, and yes, I'm using a very cold term on purpose, by criminal underpin, under kings, kingpins, <laughs> words, like Mr. Deuce, apt name, by the way, who just says, okay, I mean, how many of his the thugs working for him do you think are just guys? Like, not, you know, oh, I hate, I love doing the violence. But these are people who actually come here be, who, and who wanted a job or wanted to start a new life or wanted to do whatever and failed miserably. And like Sinclair says, they couldn't get a trip home. And they had nowhere else to go. So what do you do? And once again, you find yourself the option. You want to beat people up for me for a living? Because I'll pay you for it. Or do you want to go starve to death on literally sitting on an alleyway? Most people would probably take the beating people up job there, especially if they had someone else to pay for. It's something that I liked very much about Lord of the Rings Online. I know this sounds like a segue, but hear me out. In Lotro, there's an entire quest chain where you learn about why Bree's economy is kind of screwed. There's a lot of people in Bree who look at honest, decent jobs, and there's such a barrier to get those jobs. You need education, you need backing, you need uh, to be considered someone who is either of decent birth or you have to have the right, you know, look to you or you have to know someone, you know, again, that's more of the backing thing. So there's a, such an obstacle to getting such a, just an ordinary job that after trying and failing and trying and failing, they gave up and joined bandits. 
became part of a bandit group because all the bandits wanted for you to do was to go beat some people up or go threaten some people and they'll pay you. In other words, it's basically just a job to them. It's just a job that they can actually get. Now, to bring the education thing into here, there's also someone in Lotro who's trying to get a job who is who's an idiot, basically, who is uh, mentally deficient, I want to make that clear, and who the only thing he could really do is really basic hard labor, like working on a farm or whatever, or acting as muscle. And again, he did try to get a regular job, you know, a more ordinary legal job, failed, and signed up pretty quickly with the bandits. They actually valued him. They actually cared about his, his contribution. Whereas if he's working on a farmhand, he is the lowest of the low. He's right above the cows on the farm. It's not hard to understand why someone would go for that kind of a thing. And again, who's to blame? Who gives a crap who's to blame? What do we do to fix that? Now, I'm going to go out of my way to not give any of my opinions or my thoughts on possible solutions or ideas or even philosophies that might be implemented. And, of course, any such thing would depend on the individual circumstance. I do open this for debate for anybody who wants to. That's the whole point of the controversial Deutsch box. I hope, you, I hope you're regretting naming it by now, Deutsch. Um, but there is no easy solution to a problem like this. You can't just make money in order to make a problem like this go away. You can move money from one place to the other if you have the power to. Most of the time, you don't have the power to because the people who have the money either have the power or have means of ensuring they hold on to the power. Or worse, the co you're in a system where political infrastructure is the only form of power and in a system where there is no such thing as personal power, money is basically power. It might as well be. It is a resource. And that's the end of that. So, yes, you could go... So, to use a theoretical, if you could somehow seize the assets of the super rich, not even just the rich, the super rich, the people who are really well off, and use that assets to improve infrastructure, uh, help push forward engineering projects, or, or construction projects, or like... Um, any form of, I, I, I guess I lied, I am giving some of my opinion. And you tried to push forward you know, jobs, tried to create jobs by doing work, and tried to create jobs by adding to the education and increasing the budget to education to ensure people have a greater uh, knowledge and skill set and the availability to get a more specialized job, get a higher skilled job. Okay, so then we've got an increase of skilled laborers and an increase of laborers, and that's great, and that would work. All you have to do is get that money away from the super rich. So how do you do that? You see the problem here? It's not that easy of a solution. And it probably doesn't help that in a setting like Babylon 5, and I'm trying really hard to stay out of real-life politics here, in a setting like Babylon 5, the super-rich are the ones who are holding the reins. <sighs> Anyways, that's all I got, guys. Uh, hopefully, people will not explode over this one. Um... It's, that's what the whole controversial box thing is about. I already, you know, bit off this this particular thing with the episode Believers, and you guys have been great about that, so that's awesome. Regardless, I'm going to go ahead and get working on my next, next episode, so I will see you next time. Chukwu.